I want to begin this morning with a very simple question. It's one that anybody from any walk of life has been asked or has thought of at different points, Christian, non-Christian, or anywhere else in between. It's a simple yes or no question. It's, are you afraid this morning? I'll ask you again. Are you afraid this morning? For a lot of us, the answer would be, well, not really. I'm sitting here in church. I've these pews are fairly comfortable. I'm just kind of relaxing, listening to this person speak. I've, sure, there might be stress at work or family drama or certain issues that we're all struggling with, but overall, not really. But let me take a second and remind you of a world that we live in, a world that is full of, that is full of darkness, a world full of evil. Just this last week, we saw that darkness and evil shone in a series of different shootings that happened in this country. Thinking of El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio and other small shootings in Brooklyn and Chicago that still happened but may not have been broadcast as much because not as people di- many people died. I'll ask you again, are you afraid this morning? Or think about as we've grown in education of the mind and of what depression and anxiety would be, why is it that as we've learned more about it, more and more people are getting diagnosed with it? Depression, anxiety, suicide is on the rise. I'll ask you again, are you afraid this morning? And that's all thinking of personal issues here. Think of somewhere else across the world. Think of crises in the Middle East, specifically perhaps in Israel, the Palestinian um, debate and issues that are going on there. People are, are over there spreading violence and people are dying there as well. Are you afraid this morning? Or perhaps maybe you're a Christian and you've seen the statistics of where Christianity seems to be going. It almost seems like every other week you hear about another church closing its doors or another pastor caught having an affair and the scars of that impacting a church for years afterwards. Are you afraid this morning? Now, I know this isn't the most positive start to a message, But I ask you to bear with me because I want to tell you know that there still is hope. There still is a chance to fight against this evil. And I feel like a lot of times when we see this evil that's happening in our world, we see the the death and the suicide and the frustrations, we sit there and just kind of say, well, that's the world we live in. There's nothing we can do. But I want to tell you all this morning that there is something that we can do. There is something that we can do to help fight against this violence, this oppression or injustice. And that can be done And God is doing that every single day, and he is doing that here at Calvary Baptist Church. He does that through his greatest weapon. It's the church. And in fact, the idea that I want you all to get out of this morning, if there's one thing you can take away this morning, it's this. I'll say it, and we'll explain it throughout this message, and it is that God's victorious church is built by those who know him and tell others about him. I'll say it again. God's victorious church is built by those who know him and tell others about him. The passage that we're going to be in today is Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 13, and as you're turning it in your Bibles or you're looking at it on your phones or finding whatever way you can get to the scriptures, allow me to lay down some some context, some foundation for this passage, because anytime you want to interpret the Bible, you need to figure out what the context of that passage is so that you can get a good understanding of it. So in Matthew chapter 16, it's in this greater book of Matthew, it was written by an, a disciple of Jesus Christ, an apostle named Matthew. Clever enough, names the book after himself. He recorded Jesus' ministry as Jesus was on this earth in first century Roman 
controlled Judea. It's a real historical thing. And we're at this point, chapter 16, we're about the middle of his ministry, somewhere in the middle there. And Jesus has been going around, doing his thing, doing his miracles, raising people from the dead, calming the seas, helping lame people, paralyzed people walk, healing people of leprosy. He's been doing a lot of stuff that people, if someone showed up in Battle Creek, Michigan today and started doing that, we would all wonder, who in the world is this guy? And that's what the people then were wondering. Remember, these are people, these were people too. And there's a lot of different curiosities between the regular people, the, the, the Jewish people of the time, between the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious authority of the time, and the Greco-Roman people, the uh, pagan people, if you will. And when we, so with that context, we look in Matthew 16, starting at verse 13, we see that it is when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, stop right there, it's easy to look at that and say, okay, Caesarea Philippi, just some old city, who cares, all those people are probably dead at this point, we don't need to worry about them. But let me take a second and look at what Caesarea Philippi actually was. Caesarea Philippi was a city in the very far north of Israel, Probably could have had a map, that might have been useful. But regardless, it was in the far north of Israel. It was underneath one of the big, it was at the foot of one of the biggest mountains in that area, Mount Hermon. And in that area, it was kind of like your, your cultural place. Like things were happening there. It was like, kind of like for us, our Chicago of the Midwest, where in Chicago, you have a lot of stuff happening there. And it's kind of like a crossroads. If you're in Chicago, you can go north up into Wisconsin, go northeast, come hang out with us in Michigan. You could go further south into Illinois or wherever else, and if you go straight east, you, you can go to Indiana and Ohio. I don't know why you might, but regardless, <laughs> it was Caesarea Philippi was kind of that crossroad. You could go further south into Israel, eventually make it down to Jerusalem. You can go further north, up into other Roman provinces. You can go out east, and you see some other people that weren't controlled by the Romans at the time, and out west is water. So you really don't want to go out there if you don't have a boat. But this was kind of the setting of where we're in. And because it's a crossroad, a lot of people come to this area, a lot of different ideas were in this area. There's a lot of different ideas of what was truth. On the one hand, you had Jewish people at the time who were saying that Yahweh is the one true God, no other God above him, all these different things about the great God that we know of. And on the other hand, you have Greco-Roman pagan beliefs. There was a series of different temples. Archaeological discoveries have seen a lot of different temples in this city, and there seemed to be an emphasis on this God called Pan. Not really important to the story, but I just thought that was weird that you would name a God after a Pan, but regardless, it's what they did. And there's a lot of different truth claims, a lot of different people were saying different things, either Yahweh is Lord, or either this Pan guy is Lord, or some people were even saying the Roman Emperor was Lord. And then Jesus comes in. And in light of all of this cultural blending, melting pot area, all these different truth claims, Jesus comes in with his disciples and, and says in the second part of verse 13, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say that I am in the ESV translation? And whoever you decide Jesus is in your life is the most important decision you can make. People can say he's a, he was a good man. People can say he was a liar. People can say he was a crazy person. People can say all sorts of different things. And at this point, a lot of people were saying all sorts of different things. Whereas in verse 14, the disciples respond back very quickly. 
Oh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or, or one of the prophets. So they have all these different ideas of what people are saying Jesus was, or who people thought he was. But then Jesus makes it personal. And in verse 15, he says, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? It's really easy to say, say what somebody else's opinion was about a topic if a random person asks you, and it's kind of one of those really debated topics that can make people uncomfortable if someone disagrees with them. If someone comes up to you and asks you a question about your faith, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, my pastor said this, or I heard this guy say this that one time, or my grandpa Russ mentioned this at some time, or other things like that. And it's easy to say that. And I know that that's something that I've fallen into. And I don't think I'm the only one that's done that. And there was a point when I, somebody specifically asked me a question about some sort of theological Christian doctrine, whatever else, and I mentioned, well, my professor says this, and he stopped me right in the moment. He said, no, I want to hear what you said. What is your opinion on this? And it felt a little, it was a little uncomfortable. I mean, it's, it feels uncomfortable because you have to say what you believe in, and that's easy, easily can be, make someone offended, can easily make someone start arguing with you, and it feels a little odd, and that's exactly what Jesus does here. He says, who do you say that I am? Makes it personal. And I can imagine at that point, all the disciples, they're, they're sitting around in a circle at this campfire. Maybe it's evening. There's dancing and singing going on in other temples or whatever else. And they're all just sitting there silently after Jesus makes this, asks this personal question. They're all kind of looking at each other, trying to figure out who's going who's gonna to answer Jesus. And then who other else decides to answer Jesus other than Simon Peter? Where he says in verse 16... He says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And these next, this verse, verse 16, and the two after, 17 and 18, these are the key verses that we're going to spend a lot of time in today because these verses can give us a sort of idea. They kind of show us what we can do today to be able to help fight against these forces of evil in our world. Remember what I asked? Are you afraid this morning? This is a way that we can say, well, the world is scary, but... We don't have to be afraid. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Cool. Verse 17, and Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades shall not overpower it, or the forces or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In this passage, we, can, we need to be very careful because these three verses here, this whole passage here, it's been a very debated passage among people who claim to be Christian. So for this, we kind of need to pull up our, our big boy pants and we need to really figure out what, what is it trying to say here because I've heard it said that this passage is, a, is an interpretational, biblical, theological minefield. You take the wrong step and you're not, probably, you're not really saying what's truth. So we have to be very careful when we say this, because a lot of people have taken this passage to mean that Peter himself, solely and wholly, is the rock on which the church builds, is built on, that Christ is building his church, is on the foundation of Peter and Peter alone, and from that, he is sort of this spokesperson to God while Christ is away. That's an interpretation that some people, a lot of people in Christian history have come to. And it's hard not to get to that interpretation. See, Peter, as 
many of you might know, Peter is very similar to the Greek word for rock. Peter is Petros. It's the Greek word for rock in, in, in the original language that this New Testament book was written in. And so it's easy to say, okay, Peter's a rock. On this rock, I'll build my church. Peter's the rock. Okay. But then when there's other alternate interpretations as well, and when you can't really figure out what the one interpretation is, when you can't figure it out from this passage alone, the next step in trying to figure out what the passage means is compare this passage to the rest of Scripture. See what the rest of Scripture says. Does the rest of Scripture talk about Peter being the sole leader of the church? From my own reading of Scripture? No. He's not the sole leader of the church. He is a leader, and he did a lot of good things as a, as a leader in the church. He was not the leader, however. One way that I know this specifically, you don't have to turn here, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, in talking about the church, it says that the church is built on the foundation, here it is, of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. There's this plural apostles and plural prophets that Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians, and that is the foundation of this church with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Seems to match up with our passage in verse 16 fairly well when it's talking about this rock, this foundation, very similar Greek original words. And so from that, what do these two have in common? What does Peter have in common with these apostles and prophets? Other than he was an apostle, the fact that all these apostles, they was somebody who encountered the resurrected Jesus Christ and who went out on mission. Apostle specifically means one who is sent one who is sent out into the world to share the good news of Jesus Christ with people, to share the gospel, and to help further and usher in Christ's kingdom, okay? Who were prophets. They received specific revelation from Jesus, and they went out and they told people about it. Similarity, both these people encountered Jesus, they encountered God, they encountered his word, and a lot of them wrote that word down and helped us form what our Bible is today. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about a mark of the church being biblical-based preaching? That's what this passage is saying. A foundation of the church, from what I've gathered, is revelation given by God, God giving him, telling us who he is or what his word is, and us using that to go out into the world and share it with others. Peter shows that in this passage as he's willing to be bold against all the uncertainties of the time. Again, remember where we are. Caesarea Philippi, cultural melting pot, all sorts of different truth claims. And he's making this truth claim that conflicts against all of them. He's being bold in this, and he's been bold in the rest of the Bible. Look in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, famous sermons that Peter had given, and through that he was able to share the gospel with people. He was sent out, he was bold in that. And so from this passage, from what Peter is showing us, I find three truths about God's church. Only three, and then we can be done. The first truth that I specifically see here is that God's church is built by those who know him. If you're writing notes, first point, God's church is built by those who know him. Christ was revealed to Peter from God, as we see here in, this, in verse 17, where it says, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed, or blessed is you, because flesh and blood, that being humanity, mankind, whatever else, did not reveal this to you, did not reveal this truth about God to you, but it was my Father in heaven. God is the one that reveals the truth of Christ to others. 
I can stand up here all I want and say anything I want about the Bible, but unless God is revealing that truth through me, using me as an instrument to share the truth with you guys, if he's not doing that, then I'm just kind of blabbering on and talking, and there's no point to it. But God's church is built by those who know him. He reveals himself to others. And for those of you that have been revealed about who Jesus is, this next point is very important to you. But hold on there for a second. If you don't know who Jesus is, again, it's a very important question. Jesus is the very son of God. Very son of God that was born of the Virgin Mary, fully man and fully God. Don't ask me how it works. I don't know. He lived a perfect life, and he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And he rose from the dead, conquering it. That's what we were singing about this morning. And we could know Jesus by repenting of our sins, turning away from, confessing our sins to God, and knowing that Jesus has the power to forgive us of those sins. When he does that, when he's forgiven us of those sins, and we dedicate our lives to God and follow him fully and wholly for the rest of our lives, congratulations, you're part of the church. If you haven't done that, then you can sit in this church all you want. You can be here. You can hang out with church Christian people. If you haven't made that decision, you're not a Christian. You are not a part of the church. And I would encourage you, if you haven't made that decision, to talk to a Christian that you know well. You can talk to me after the service. Love to have that conversation with you. Pastor Tom would love to have that conversation with you. Or maybe even some Christian you know in your own life. Because again, who you believe Jesus is is the most important decision you can make in your entire life. So that's point one. Point two, God's church is built by those who tell others about him. God's church is built by those who tell others about him. Peter was bold in saying who Christ was and is today. He did it several times in the book of Acts, and it led to the gospel going forth into the world. Again, he took this information that God had given him, and he decided to go forth and share it with other people. And as he was doing that, God was using him kind of like an instrument to share it with others. This point's a little bit more difficult to take, isn't it? Because this requires us to be able to go out and share our faith in boldness and reach people who aren't Christian and share with them the truth of God's word. I'll ask you a question right now, and this one might be one of those questions. You hear it and you're like, oh, I don't like that question. But I'll say it anyways because I love you guys. When was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? Was it yesterday? Was it last week? Was it last month? When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? And I'm not talking about living a certain way, acting a certain way, being a good person, and hoping that that reflects the gospel to other people. I'm talking about going up to somebody, maybe it's a friend, a family member, someone you've never met before, and just sharing who Christ is. And that is something that I'm actually preaching to myself, fully aware of how hard that can be sometimes. It requires boldness. It requires a strength that, on our own, a lot of us don't and can't have. And that is why a lot of us, myself included, it would be wise and helpful if we could talk to God in prayer, ask him for help in that, ask him for that boldness in this time, to be able to find people, even find people who are Christ, aren't Christian, and share the truth of God's word with them. That is how God pushes and moves his church I'll use one more illustration. If any of you know anything about 
the church, Christian church calendar. I didn't know about it for, until like a year ago from school. But it's this church calendar that talks about different church holidays, talking about the season of Advent leading up to Christmas. It talks about Easter and Lent and the day of Pentecost and all these sort of great holidays. And then there's a big point kind of in the middle. We're kind of in that now or we've been in that, and it's called ordinary time. It's called ordinary time. And it's a time specifically designed to share your faith. That's an emphasis of that time in the calendar, when there's not an Advent season going on or Easter or whatever else. Ordinary time, it was assumed when this calendar was written or brought about that that was the time and that was a point when you could share God's word or share the gospel with people. And I find that so interesting that it's just a very ordinary thing for Christians to be doing and sharing the gospel, yet it's so hard to do it sometimes. I know that I need help in praying for boldness in that, and I don't think I'm the only person here that needs that help. But then going on to my third point, and this, remember that question? Are you afraid this morning? This is the hope that we have. This is the important point. And this point is third point. God's church will never be defeated by evil. God's church will never be defeated by evil. Look at the last part of verse 18 after Christ sees the revelation that, he gives, that God has given Peter, and Peter shares it in boldness to, his, to the disciples or even to other people later on in the Bible story. Christ therefore says, you are Peter, and on this rock, this rock of revelation that God gives to man, and man shares it with other people, that rock, on the foundation of that, he will build his church. And here it is, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it, or the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I like that second, second way of saying it a little bit better because it's a little bit closer to the original language. But this is the hope we have. It's, there seems to be this cause and effect which leads to another effect in the way that God moves and God uses us. This cause, originally, God has information about himself, shares it with humanity, humanity repents, becomes Christian, follows after the Lord wholeheartedly, experiences the love and forgiveness that God gives us, and we want to share that love with other people. And as a result, God uses that to build up his church. And as a result of him building up the church progressively, I, sort of this growing pattern, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But then the way that Matthew says that's a little strange. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? I've heard a couple of different interpretations of what that could or couldn't mean. And there's one that I've heard quite often, actually. It's talking about what is a gate? What is a gate in the ancient world? Well, a gate's a part of a wall. A wall surrounds a city. It protects the city. It keeps it controlled and protected from enemy forces as they come and push into it, which is to show that hell is on the defense and the power of the church is only on offense. I like it, but I think there's more to it. And for that, let's look at it in the ancient world. Let's see what... A gate was in the ancient world. Again, looking at Christian or non-Christian archaeologists, looking through the ancient Near East, the setting of where this book was written, we see that the gates were used kind of like a, a town hall is for us in the Western world. It was a place where legislators were and city elders were or judicial system was. Judges were there. City leaders were there. They would pass and enact certain rules or laws or guidelines for people to follow in these different towns. It was where all the authority was of the city, all the power was of the city, 
and it was where all the decisions were made of the city. And what Matthew is trying to say here is that all the authority of hell, the power of hell, and all the judicial systems of hell and whatever that is, all of that can be culminated in this gates of hell. And when that, when Jesus himself is saying that the gates of hell shall not overcome. The leaders of hell, the people, the demonic forces that specifically have the goal to destroy us and take us away from God will not overcome the church. That's what Matthew is trying to say. This is the good news that we have. Christ is faithful in building up his church. He's doing it. It's active. You look a couple weeks ago at VBS where kids were sitting up here, we were singing the crazy songs, and Peter ate some veggie ice cream. All that was done so that the church could be built, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see the different ministries happening around the church. I've been involved in the youth group, been able to share in the lives of youth, been able to talk to, to our youth, some of them Christians, some of them not, sharing with them the good news of Christ. That is God building the church, and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. Look at other ministries. Every Sunday morning, every time we sing a song up here, every time Pastor Tom or John preaches, it is Christ building the church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. Are you afraid this morning? After hearing this, the world may be scary, but there is still hope found in Christ. But let me draw on another application, and this one might be a little bit, again, a little bit more, oh, I don't know if I want to hear that. That might be a little convicting, but I'll say it anyways. Are we willing to let... God build the church the way that he wants it to, even if it's not how we envisioned it. What I mean by that, let me make this a little bit more personal. If for some reason, in God's own infinite wisdom, tomorrow morning shuts Calvary Baptist Church's doors for the last time, and this church is done, is God no less faithful to his promise he made to us? It's personal now. And that's kind of a scary thought. But even if God closes every single church in Battle Creek, Michigan, he is no less faithful to the promise he makes here when it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Things may not be looking good for a while. And I'm not saying that all of a sudden after this message, we could all just go out and share the gospel with everyone and everything's going to get super good and happy and shiny rainbows and everything like that. That's not what I'm saying either. But what I'm saying is, this is something that we can do, all of us can do, to help fight against this evil in the world. This is something that we can do as part of the church as we go out and we share the truth of Christ. And as a result of that, evil will not prevail. Because again, Christians, we know the end of the story. Are you willing to let God build the church the way he wants to, even if it isn't what we envisioned? I'll give a story on that real quick. A couple of years ago when I was a student at Moody, or still am, but when I was a sophomore specifically, I remember when Moody kind of announced that it was going through a really rough financial season to the point where they had to close down a couple of different satellite campuses all over the United States and unfortunately let off a lot of really good, really godly Bible professors. And it was a really scary time as people were wondering, is Moody going down? Is the college that I've gone to and that has had such a reputation for sharing the gospel with people, is that all of a sudden going to be done? Maybe. Right now, Moody's in a good spot, but maybe one day Moody can close down. God's no less faithful to his promise here. I mentioned earlier that isn't it that we as Christians, we know what the end of the story looks like. Isn't it nice to know what the end of the story looks like? To be able to get a little bit of a spoiler alert to the, end of e to the beginning of eternity. 
We get to see a world in the end of the book of Revelation that shows a perfect paradise, a new heaven, a new earth, a place that was revitalized, a place that was refined by the fires of tribulation and brought about and exists as a place of beauty, as a place of worshiping to God, as a place of peace, and as a place where there is no sin or no death. All this violence, all these mass shootings, all this mental health issues, depression, anxiety, suicidal rates rising, all of this sort of issues, you know, crises in the Middle East, political instability, you name it, all this bad stuff in the world, it's not natural. It's unnatural. It's sin. And the great news that we have is that it will not last. And it isn't going to be here forever. But with that being said, that doesn't mean we can just sit back and enjoy the ride. We have a job to do. Each and every one of us who calls themselves a Christian, who is a part of God's family, has a mission through this. That is to go out and to do our own parts. Let God use us. Are you willing to let God use you as an instrument to share the gospel with other people? Is God, are you willing to let God use you to be bold and go into a world with a lot of different truth claims and a lot of different people that could get really frustrated with you Remember what happened to Peter and Paul when they went out and they shared the truth of Christ with people? We have a mission to do. We have a mission to go out, share the good news with people, and that's what we get to do. God gets to use us. The question is, are we going to let God use us in whatever way he chooses? God's victorious church is built by those who know him and who tell others about him. Are you willing to let God use you to build his church the way he wants it to be built?